Generally on this podcast, I'm going to stick to science and facts rather than fiction, but today I want to make a little departure just for fun. I want to tell you about some so-called lake monsters, specifically Chessie in Chesapeake Bay and Nebraska's Monster of Walgren Lake for two reasons. First of all, they're wonderful pieces of folklore, and second, because there's a certain romanticism about these stories. The man behind the monster of Walgren Lake, John G. Mayer, was a prominent Nebraskan who was involved in a number of tall tales and contributed to both the real history of the state as well as the mythology. And really, how many people can claim that? And as for Chessie, well, we just don't know. Is there a somewhat mundane explanation for the many sightings of this beast? Or does something as yet unknown to science lurk beneath the waters of Chesapeake Bay? It's fun to think about, isn't it? So just for fun, let's dive in, see what I did there, to the stories of Chessie, the monster of Walgren Lake, and the other hoaxes perpetrated by John G. Mayer. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, no doubt you've heard of Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, probably the most famous lake monster in the world. But stories of lake monsters abound. You might have heard of some of the other lake monsters. There's Champ, who is purported to live in Lake Champlain, which lies on the border of Vermont and New York. Bessie, who lives in Lake Erie. And Ogopogo in Lake Okanagan, Canada, just to name a few. But what about Chessie, who is rumored to live in Chesapeake Bay? Chesapeake Bay is not necessarily a bad place if you're a sea monster. Someday I'll do a whole episode on it. It's the largest estuary in the United States, 200 miles long and anywhere from 3 to 30 miles wide. At its deepest, the bay is 175 feet deep. Altogether, Chesapeake Bay covers about 64,000 square miles with over 150 major rivers and streams feeding into it. Combine that with a connection to the Atlantic Ocean, and it's not too much of a stretch to think that something strange could avoid detection for a long time. The first reported sighting of something mysterious near Chesapeake Bay was in 1936, and it came from a pretty reliable source. The crew of a military helicopter flying over the Bush River, which feeds into the bay near Baltimore, reported seeing something, quote, reptilian and unknown, unquote, in the water below. Another sighting in 1943 by two fishermen described a creature 12 feet long with a football-sized head that looked something like a horse. Mysterious sightings continued throughout the years, with some witnesses claiming the beast was 25 to 30 feet long. I mean, maybe the 12-foot-long creature seen in 1943 just grew up. But all accounts seem to agree that the creature is dark in color, serpent-like, and has a football-sized head. On May 31, 1982, Robert Frew and his wife Karen were entertaining guests in their Kent Island home at the mouth of the Chester River when they saw a strange creature about 200 feet away. Robert grabbed his video camera and recorded the creature as it dove down into the water and resubmerged several times. Again, witnesses estimated the creature to be about 30 feet long and less than a foot in diameter. The visible part of the back appeared to have humps, and its head was shaped like a roundish football. On August 20th, 
Seven scientists from the Smithsonian Institute, along with representatives from Maryland's Department of Natural Resources and the National Aquarium, gathered to study Fru's videotape and discuss their findings. George Zug from the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History wrote the report, and all agreed that there was an animate object in the Chesapeake Bay that they couldn't identify. Now, beginning in the 1980s, Chessie became a symbol for environmental advocacy in Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay. Illustrations of the monster in newspapers and government publications, accompanying articles about environmental issues, gave the monster a friendly appearance and portrayed Chessie and the Chesapeake Bay ecosystem at large as victims of pollution. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service printed a coloring book in 1986 titled Chessie, a Chesapeake Bay Story, followed by Chessie Returns in 1991, and these were focused on the Chesapeake Bay and protecting its resources. Now, the most recent sighting of Chessie occurred on April 5, 2014. On that day, an unnamed Maryland resident and his friend reported seeing a black, snake-like creature, 25 to 30 feet long, with no fins and a slender, football-shaped head, although he couldn't tell if it had scales or leathery skin. The witness said that the creature did not rise out of the water, but the head and tail end just reached the surface, and it moved with, quote, a serpentine motion. He reported the sighting to the Maryland Department of Natural Resources shortly after. A belated April Fool's joke or something else? Now, some possible explanations for Chessie sightings have been offered. Some sightings, upon investigation, have turned out to be manatees, which in the summer are not entirely unknown in Chesapeake Bay, and manatees can be 15 feet long. Others have suggested that Chessie may be a python or even a giant anaconda that escaped a ship sailing from South America. Now, anacondas swim in freshwater. Maybe one could adapt to the brackish water of the bay. But it's unclear whether an anaconda, which is native to the tropics, could survive the winter this far north. Now, I have to admit that I have mixed emotions. Part of me is curious to know if a giant creature, whether an exotic transplant or something unknown, lurks in Chesapeake Bay. And another part of me, perhaps the larger part, hopes that it just remains a mystery. Now, you've probably never heard of Nebraska's Walgren Lake Monster. First reported in 1921, the story of the monster of Walgren Lake made it all the way to London, England. Is this creature real? Absolutely not. But the story of the monster and how it came to be reported as far away as London is fascinating and an entertaining piece of history. I first came across the story of the monster of Walgren Lake while researching a program about the Sandhills of Nebraska. Now, like I said earlier, I'm sure you've heard of Loch Ness, which is, of course, in Scotland, but I'm guessing that very few of you have heard of Walgren Lake or Hay Springs, Nebraska. Hay Springs and Walgren Lake are located in northwestern Nebraska on the western edge of the Sand Hills region. Hay Springs was established in 1885 when the railroad extended to that point. In 2019, it boasted a population of 540 people, slightly less than what it was in 1920, and about half of what it was at its peak of 1,091 in 1950. Walgren Lake, originally known as Big Alkali Lake, sits about seven miles southeast of Hay Springs. Now it's a state recreation area, and according to Nebraska Game and Parks, the surface area of the lake is 50 acres. 
but in 1920, it was much larger. Now, accounts vary. One report says the lake was 120 acres, but another listed the size as three quarters of a mile wide and nearly a mile long, about four and a half miles in circumference, which by my calculations works out to somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 700 acres. Now, either way, the point is the lake was significantly larger in 1920 than what it is today. And it's not hard to imagine that in the early 1900s, in the dry and tree-challenged Great Plains of northwestern Nebraska, the lake was probably a good destination for the people of Hay Springs to spend a lazy summer Sunday afternoon. There were rumors of a creature in the lake prior to 1920, something akin to a prehistoric dinosaur, and these stories may or may not have stemmed from Native American lore. But on September 16, 1921, the Hay Springs News ran a story about the monster with the headline, If it isn't a whale, it's a whaler of an animal. The monster was, quite literally, the talk of the town. In October of that same year, dragging the lake to find the creature was proposed, but the cost of leasing the land from the landowners was too high, and there was not a big enough net to hold the creature, so the matter was dropped. Over the next few years, several witnesses claimed to have encountered the monster. In August of 1922, the Hay Springs News headline read, Huge Water Animal Again Seen at the Surface. Descriptions of the monster varied. In 1923, a Hay Springs man named J.A. Johnson gave an interview to the Omaha World Herald. He claimed that he and his friends saw the creature and described it as 40 feet long, dull gray-brown in color with a horn-like object between its eyes and nostrils. He went on to say that when the creature noticed the men, it emitted a dreadful roar, thrashed its tail about, and then dove under the water. In other reports, the monster was even larger. One story claimed that a skeptical Omaha man spent the night alone at Walgren Lake, and when he returned, his hair had turned white and he looked haggard and worn. He was unable to speak for three days, and when he finally recovered his voice, he described the creature as 300 feet long with a mouth big enough to hold several train cars. Serpentine or alligator-like, with or without a large horn between its eyes, shiny black or dull gray, scaly or not, it was alleged to come ashore and flatten cornfields and devour livestock. It was said that its footsteps shook the ground so hard it made nearby farmers sick, and gnashing of its teeth sounded like thunder. It had a loud roar, flashing green eyes, an awful stench, and even was said to spit fire. Local fundamentalist Christians believed that it was sent by the devil to test their faith. Reports and retellings of the tale went on for years, if not decades, with each one the legend grew. Now, surely if such a creature existed, there would have been some definitive proof. In drought years, the lake was described as being little more than a puddle, and at one point a nearby stream was diverted into the lake to help it out. A 300-foot-long monster, or even a 40-foot-long one for that matter, or the remains of one would surely have been noticeable when the lake shrunk, which leaves the lingering question, where did the story of the beast originate? The monster of Walgren Lake is one of several stories, and certainly the most enduring one, created by a man named John G. Mayer. Now, John G. Mayer was much more than just a hoaxer. He deserves a place in the annals of Nebraska history. So, who was he? 
John G. Mayer was born in 1869 and spent much of his life in the Chadron area, about 20 miles northwest of Hay Springs, which explains why most of his hoaxes and tall tales take place, or at least originate, in this region. His father was briefly a state senator and was credited as being the first to bring winter wheat to Nebraska. In 1898, Mayer volunteered and served as a private in the Spanish-American War. He served on the Mexican border under General Pershing during the hunt for the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa. When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, he volunteered to serve again and was given the rank of major. During the war, he was the chief dispersing officer in charge of finance and spent some time in Germany, Russia, Italy, and Belgium. After the war in 1919, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and given an honorable discharge. He was appointed as a state advisor to the Public Works Administration by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1933. At various times throughout his life, when not serving in the military, John G. Mayer worked as a teacher, a court reporter, a county clerk and registrar of deeds, real estate and insurance agent, and a lawyer. He took leadership roles in many community organizations. He was president of the Friends of the Irish Republic, president of the Nebraska Progressive League, helped organize the American Legion, and was commander of the Spanish-American veterans. But it was through his role as a Western correspondent for the New York Herald that Mayer's tall tales gained international attention. Now, the New York Herald in 1890 was not exactly what you would call a reliable news source. At the time, Eastern newspapers and their readers were intensely interested in stories from the Great Plains. The area was still sparsely populated and somewhat mysterious. Stories of Indians, natural phenomenon, and unexplored areas were in vogue. This was entertainment. There was no radio, no TV, no movie theaters, and certainly no Netflix. We really haven't changed that much if you think about it. Nowadays we watch shows like The X-Files or Unexplained Mysteries. In 1890, hearing news from faraway places was entertainment. And if you've seen the movie News of the World, where Tom Hanks travels from town to town to read the news from various newspapers of the world, you've got the idea. To meet this demand, Mayer, well, he embellished and sometimes outright fabricated stories to supplement the real stories that he reported. It's generally assumed that it was Mayer who supplied the story of the monster of Walgren Lake, complete with a picture, to the London Times in 1923. Now, the monster of Walgren Lake may have been Mayer's most enduring hoax, but it was certainly not his first, nor his most elaborate. That distinction goes to the petrified man. In 1887, an archaeologist named Dr. John Hatcher discovered dinosaur remains that were described in the New York press as being a million years old. Mayer and some of his friends wondered, why aren't there million-year-old human remains? Well, nowadays we know why. Humans and dinosaurs weren't around at the same time. But this question was the beginning for the idea to create a petrified man. When Dr. Hatcher came to the so-called Badlands of Nebraska to dig for fossils, the temptation to plant a petrified man in the archaeologist's path became a reality. Working in secret, Mayer and his accomplices started out by selecting a soldier from the 9th Cavalry at Fort Robinson, one of the soldiers known as Buffalo Soldiers during the Civil War. They made a plaster cast of the man lying on his side, which they then used to cast the figure in cement. Using shingles, they made the feet of the figure flat 
because flat feet were thought to be one of the distinguishing characteristics of prehistoric man. Once the figure was completed, they hauled it by wagon out to the Badlands and partially buried it not far from where Dr. Hatcher and his team were digging. No small feat, considering the figure would have weighed several hundred pounds. On a rainy October afternoon, the figure was discovered half-buried in the clay. A report in the Dawes County Journal reported that brothers Ed and Clyde Rossiter were digging for fossils when Ed found what he thought to be a bone protruding from a bank of clay. A little more digging brought him to a hand. Clyde guarded the treasure while Ed went into town to get help excavating the rest of the man and moving it to the Rossiter Hotel. The report describes the geological layer the body was found in and postulates that it must have originally been buried at least 200 feet below the surface at a time when that particular layer was soft and yielding. When tests declared the calcium content and structural arrangement to be correct, the petrified man was declared to be genuine and taken on tour across the United States by D.W. Sperling of Chadron, who, incidentally, was John Mayer's lawyer. Mr. Sperling would later write to Mayer that the enterprise was getting out of hand and recommended that they discontinue the exhibitions. The petrified man of Chadron was respectfully laid away in a vault in Champaign, Illinois. In the 1930s, the Lincoln Historical Society looked into bringing the man back to Nebraska, but the cost was too high. So the petrified man, as far as I know, is still in Illinois somewhere. One of Mayer's more minor hoaxes involved sinking bags of soda into hot springs near Chadron to create a soda springs. At the time, many people were traveling to Thermopolis, Wyoming, or Hot Springs, South Dakota. Now they would come to Chadron. Mayer prepared stories of people who drank from the Chadron soda springs and threw away their crutches. Another famous Mayer story was the finding and subsequent pursuit of a Cuban soldier responsible for blowing up the USS Maine, an event that precipitated the United States' involvement in the Spanish-American War. The story was submitted to the New York Herald in an episode-like fashion and followed by readers the way you or I would follow a Netflix series. Mayer stretched it out for almost a year until the government started to take an interest. He wrapped up the story by securing a cadaver and burning it inside an abandoned cabin. Subsequent investigation proved that the cadaver had been dead long before it was burned in the cabin and that there was actually no such person in the Cuban army by the name Mayer had invented, and the matter was dropped. Yet another story created by Mayer was about the British Navy sailing up the Niobrara River to seize the Nebraska towns of O'Neill and Ballantyne and arrest Irish settlers in those towns for supporting Irish independence from Britain. Although, I have to say, the strangest thing about this story was not necessarily Mayer's fiction of the British Navy sailing all the way into northwestern Nebraska, but the true story behind it. The kernel of truth in Mayer's fiction was this. An Irishman named John O'Neill, for whom the town of O'Neill, Nebraska was named, had plans to invade Canada in support of Irish independence from Britain. In fact, he had been arrested twice for attempting to seize towns in Canada. Even though Canada, at the time of O'Neill's raids, was under British control, I don't quite follow O'Neill's logic. In this case, truth is almost stranger than fiction. Later in his life, John G. Mayer counted among his friends notable personalities like the former King Alfonso of Spain. 
John G. Mayer died in 1939 of heart failure at the age of 70 while living in Rome with his family. His body was brought back to the United States, and he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. In her book, Nebraska Folklore, Louise Pound shares a story from Marie Sandoz, the author of the prize-winning novel Old Jewels, about her father's life in the Sandhills. Miss Sandoz went to see Mayer to ask him about an incident in her father's life, a trial at which Mayer was the court reporter. Hearing the name Old Jules and not realizing that Marie was Jules's daughter, Mayer launched into a tale about how Jules had been bitten by a rattlesnake in front of his wife and children, and rather than succumb to the poison and die, Jules, according to Mayer's story, shot off his own hand. Once Mayer realized who he was talking to and that he had been caught in a fabrication, Mayer just laughed and said, well, it was a damn good story the way I was telling it, wasn't it? You see, John Mayer did not perpetrate hoaxes out of malice or greed. He wasn't trying to get rich off of these stories. It really seemed to be just about entertainment and the love of a tall tale. His real life was, to a certain extent, larger than life, and it seems only right that some of his tall tales should live on too. And that, my friends brings us to the conclusion of this episode. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for a future episode, feel free to send me an email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, and I hope you are, and you want to support future episodes, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.